0: 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we finished chapter 3 and, and I, <clears throat> I, I went ahead and, and we're going to continue on into chapter 4 because it's appropriate that today is Father's Day and I want to read to you, um, we're going to be dealing with the first 16 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 but I want to read to you first of all uh, verse 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 15 And Paul makes this statement, he says, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Now I'm going to read, um, that's going to kind of be our focal point today. And I want to read to you, and I want you just to follow along with me as we read these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's begin in verse 1. Let a man so consider us. So Paul is saying right here, here's how I want you guys to consider us. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself... Yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. That you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full, you are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish you did reign that we also might reign with you. Do you see the sarcasm there? Paul is being sarcastic when he says to them, You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I, wish, I could wish you did reign that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last As men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools, for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are distinguished. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Paul is using more sarcasm there. He's talking about the way the Corinthians saw themselves and considered Themselves And they were judging Paul and his ministry because of Paul's condition. So he says, We are fools, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. That is pretty strong language. You think about what the Apostle Paul is saying about his life and his ministry and the things that he has experienced and encountered. And this is the way that much of the world looked at him and saw him, the scum of the earth, the offscouring of all things. But he says in verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children I warn you, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you, Through the gospel. Now, there is a lot in these verses here, and we don't have time to deal with everything that is here. We're going to look at three aspects of these verses. Paul declares himself to be three things in these 15 verses of Scripture he declares himself to be a servant, he declares himself to be a steward. And he declares himself to be a father. And I want to talk about those three things. A servant, a steward, and a father. Let's begin with a servant. Let's go back up to verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ. So Paul declares that we should consider him a servant of Christ. This word servant here... Is translated minister if you have a King James version. Anyone else have a version that says minister? New King James, probably most of the other translations will use the word servant. Interestingly, Paul does not use the term bondservant here. Oftentimes, Paul referred to himself as a bondservant. It's the Greek word doulos, it's the lowest form of slavery. This is a really interesting word that Paul chooses to use in this text here. He uses this word which at its root was a military term and what it literally means is an under oarsman, an under oarsman. So uh, I remember in fifth grade, I don't know why I studied this in fifth grade, it's the one one two two things I remember most about fifth grade is we, we read The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe and we studied uh, the battle between the Greeks and the Persians, the Battle of Salamis. uh, It was a naval battle, one of the greatest naval battles in all of history. And and if you remember, if you guys know anything about ancient history, in the Greeks, the Persians, and even in the Roman times, uh, Paul was living in the time of the Roman Empire, and the Roman warships were these ships that were driven by, they were powered by oarsmen. So you had this ship that was designed to ram other ships. So I had a very strong front, and, and the oarsmen would sit in a, in a galley about a foot below. Um, it would be about like this. The, the captain would stand on an elevated platform, and in this sunken part were the uh, oarsmen sitting there. And they were like right at the waterline or so, And they would have these oars, and they would be chained to these seats, and you would have rows of oarsmen. And the captain would stand there, and he would command the oarsmen to row. This is the term Paul is using. He said, I am a servant. I am an under oarsman for Christ, an under oarsman of Christ. Christ is my captain, and I am the under oarsman who is rowing his ship. Now, this really paints a pretty vivid picture. If if we were living in that time and we understood this term, there were all kinds of things would automatically come to, to the forefront of our mind of the picture Paul is painting here. First of all, Paul is not rowing the boat by himself. Paul is chained with others. Paul uses this term often. He literally was chained in the house of Caesar. He really was chained in Rome. But but Paul also understood that his chains were not just literal. they They were figurative, but they were real. He was a servant of Christ. He was an under oarsman of Christ. He was chained in the galley of that boat, and he was rowing at the command of his captain. And so this is the picture Paul Paints for us when he says, I am a servant of Christ under the direction of my captain on this warship. And so these under oarsmen all chained together, and their task was to row at the direction of the captain who stood in this elevated place over them. And he would give them commands, and they would respond immediately because their quick and efficient work was absolutely necessary. If you're going to win a battle. And so these guys were highly trained, highly efficient in the way they worked together. And so Paul says, I am a servant. I am an under oarsman of Christ. So in this sense, Paul was was one of many servants, all working together, responding obediently and efficiently to the captain's command. This term later became a commonly used term to refer to to ministers or the attendant of a magistrate. For instance, in the parable of the the guy who goes before the judge, and the judge, uh, he owes a debt, and he begs for mercy, and the judge, the judge grants him mercy and forgives his debt, and then he goes out and encounters this guy, you know, who owes him a far less sum of money, and he demands payment and has him tossed in jail, and the word gets back to the judge. And and the the Lord there, the magistrate there, commands the officers to throw him in the jail. That's the term for those officers. They They were the servants, the attendants of the magistrate who would enforce the judgment of the judge. So it became one of these words that was used. It's also used as a preacher. But interestingly, the root of this word paints a picture of someone working under the direction and not working alone, but working with others who are also chained with him. And so, Paul, in calling himself a servant, using this term, is communicating that he's not serving alone and that he is accountable to the captain of that ship. And in this, Paul is declaring that he's accountable to Christ along with all of the others that are serving their captain. So as a servant of Christ, we are all of these. Think about it. We're attendants to the king. We're soldiers in his army. We're one of many chained together, working together, pulling and pushing in unison under the direction of the captain of the ship, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are accountable to the word of our captain. Are you hearing me? We are accountable to the word of our captain and the work of the kingdom. So this servant, this term servant here under oarsman. If you think about it, it opposes the picture that's often presented today in the church and of God's people independently doing their own thing, seeking their own will, looking to a God to give them their own way. This in no way, shape, or form is what a servant is in the biblical sense. All of the words that God uses in the scripture that these men write, whether it's an under oarsman or a bond servant, these are pictures of servanthood that speaks of something far different than we often want to believe that it speaks of. God does not exist to serve us. We exist to serve him. And I know people don't like to think of it that way, but that is just the reality of it. So we are servants of Christ. Paul says, I am a servant of Christ. Can we find our joy in our service to Christ? Now, you know, we think of being an under oarsman. It doesn't sound very joyful, does it? But there are. this is why the Bible uses a variety of terms to describe the reality of who we are. So don't get stuck on the fact that we're under oarsmen or we're bond servants or slaves, because that's really the term, slave. We don't like to use that term, but that's really what, what it was. Don't get hung up on that, because that's not the only picture that God gives us. It's part of the picture, and it's a reality that we need to understand when we, if we want to properly and, health, and in a healthful way, understand our relationship to God. The second one is this, Paul in the same verse, he says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul couples this term servant with the term steward. We are to consider him a steward of the mysteries of God, he says. The word steward means the manager of a house or a household. Um, to, to help you guys get kind of an idea, how many of you watch Downton Abbey? Guess who the steward of Downton Abbey is? It would be Mr. Carson. Mr. Carson would be the closest thing um, in, in that sense of a steward. But yet this, this term steward here really communicates much more than even what Mr. Carson does on Downton Abbey. My, uh, my youngest son, his name is Spencer. It was my mother's maiden name. It's a, it's a Welsh or an English name. And the name, what it means is the dispenser of provision. That's what the Spencer was. And the dispenser is an old French term. And, it, and, and so in a castle, the Spencer was the guy who gave out, he was in charge of all the provision of the house. He managed the house. Nothing went out without his, he was the the steward of the house. And so this very simply is what this term means. It's the manager of a house or a household. So specifically, Paul is a steward of the mysteries of God. And it's required, he says, that a steward be faithful This stewardship is concerning the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God and the performance of the work of the kingdom. Paul is not talking about being a a steward over natural provision. He's not literally talking about food and clothing and supplies. He's talking about, he said, I am a steward of the mysteries of God. And so we need to understand what Paul is communicating here. A steward was the manager of the house. One of the steward's main responsibilities was the dispensing of provision. And he was to be faithful in dispensing that provision to the house. So God's steward is to be faithful in his dispensing of the spiritual provision for the house, which are the mysteries of God or the word of God. So let's look at this word mysteries so that we don't become confused about what Paul is saying or what he's not saying here. Paul is not referring to some secret. This this word in the scripture was often used in Greek culture to refer to like mysterious knowledge. And there were mystery religions and they had uh, secret rites and secret oaths they would have to take in order to be initiated into the rites of these religious orders. This is not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about the mysteries of God. It's not the first time he's used this phrase, as a matter of fact. He's not referring to some secret mystery religion or some ritual or initiation into these religious rites. He's referring to the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Jew and Gentile becoming one in Christ, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery that God hid from before the ages that is now revealed to us in Christ. If you go back to just a, a page, a few verses back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul uses the same word, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden which, wisdom which God ordained before the ages. Why was it a mystery? Because it was hidden, because it was secret. God reserved it. When did he choose to make it known? He chose to make it known when he sent his son forth. He talks about the same mystery. If you go over to the book of Colossians, verses 1, Colossians 1, 26 and 27, same word here. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul said, I am a steward of the mysteries of God. I'm a steward of this Word. I'm a steward of this message. I'm a steward of this gospel. I'm a steward of this hidden wisdom that God has now revealed in Christ Jesus. And a steward is required to be faithful. To be faithful to do what? To be faithful to dispense the provision of the house faithfully and properly. so we're to be faithful in the dispensing of the gospel. We could say it like that. If the steward is called to be faithful in his dispensing of the provision of the house, it would follow that those receiving that provision are called to be faithful in its use. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I am called to be faithful to dispense the word of God. You are called to be faithful to receive it And then pass it on to those that God has placed in your care and in your realm of influence. As Jesus told his disciples, freely you have received, so freely give. The gospel, the provision is not given to us so that we can hoard it, so that we can keep it for ourselves. The provision is given to us so that it can bring life sustaining power so that it will build us up and enrich us so that we can, in turn, pass along the life that it has provided for us. So we are to be faithful to dispense God's spiritual provision for his house. The steward is called to give out the king's provision uncompromised, undiluted, and in full measure, and that is exactly how you are to receive it. Uncompromised, undiluted, and in full measure. So when Paul declares that he is a steward of the mysteries of God, Paul is declaring his responsibility given to him by God. So stewardship speaks of our responsibility over the spiritual provision of God's house. We could just say it speaks of the provision of God's house. What is the provision? This is our meat. This is our bread. This word is. Christ referred to himself as the living water, he referred to himself as the bread of life. This is the provision of God's house. Hebrews 3, 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. We are the house of God. We are the church, the blood-bought, the redeemed. Amen? So the king's provision is not given to be wasted, but to build up, To strengthen and to sustain his house to do the work of his kingdom. We are God's household, according to Hebrews 3.6. And we are called to be faithful with the provision of his house. And we are all, in some ways, stewards of God's provision. Do you see that? Because we are all called to preach and to proclaim the gospel. We are all called as servants of God to make disciples. That means there has not only been a stewardship entrusted to me as your pastor, but there is a stewardship entrusted to each one of us as servants of God, as those who have received the provision of God, as those who have now been made, it has been revealed to us the mystery of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there is a responsibility that we have as stewards to be faithful in how we receive and in how we dispense the provision that has been meted out to us. So I have to be faithful in dispensing it, but you are called to be faithful to receive it, not to waste it, but to use it as the king, as the master who has provided it has intended it to be used. Amen? Amen. And the last that we'll look at, Paul says in verse 15, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. We cannot think of fathers without thinking of children right? If I say a man, if I say the word man, you don't necessarily think child. You think woman, maybe. But if I say a man is a father, that automatically implies that there are children involved. Paul didn't say you have many instructors. He didn't say you have 10,000 fathers, he said, you have 10,000 instructors. He didn't say you have a bunch of fathers. He said, you have a bunch of instructors, but you don't have very many fathers. I was—I um, got to talk to some dads yesterday. Um, some of these guys were quite elderly. They lived at the assisted living place there at the SPGST, and it was a father-son luncheon, and um, it was really neat to see you know, the span of generations there. Fatherhood, to be a father, communicates a lot. It carries with it a lot of responsibility. So Paul considered himself a father to these children of his this church in Corinth. And he'd begotten them, he said, through the gospel. So these were Paul's spiritual children, To be a father carries with it great responsibility. Fathers are not made in the conception of a child. Are you listening to me, men? Fathers aren't made in the conception of a child, but in the raising of a child. In the faithful protection, provision, and oversight that a father's love and responsibility demands. You do not have many fathers. You do not have Many that truly love you and truly care for you is what Paul was saying. You've got a bunch of instructors and his implication here from now coming, we're reading this letter. Remember when when the Corinthians got this letter, when Paul wrote this letter and it was sent to the church here, this letter arrived at the church and they rolled out this letter and they read this letter to the entire church. And so by the time, if just imagine that we're sitting in first century Greece in the city of Corinth, and we're assembled as the church in the city of Corinth, and our apostle and spiritual father, Paul, has just sent us a letter, and now it's been rolled out and the pastor's Of the church, the pastor is reading the letter to the congregation. And by the time they get to what we would call chapter four in the reading of this letter, they're understanding what Paul is speaking of, they're understanding his tone. They're understanding that he's telling them, when I came to you, I came to you knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. I didn't come to you trying to sell you something. I didn't come to you trying to prove who I was. I didn't come to you to persuade you of anything. I came to you as a witness, as a testimony of Christ and Christ crucified. The demonstration of God's spirit and God's power is testified by your faith. The fact that you believe, the fact that you now call yourself Christians is the demonstration of God's spirit and God's power. Paul said, I didn't do that. God did that by his spirit and by his power. But there are those who would tell you that my message is wrong, that I am foolish, that yada, 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 yada. This is is, their understanding what Paul is saying here. Now, before Paul makes this statement here about being their father. You do not have many fathers. He he says some things back up in verse nine that we're going to look at in just a minute. So what is he saying when he says, you have 10,000 instructors, but you don't have many fathers? What he's saying is there are many who will use you to achieve their own ends, who will tell you what you want to hear to spoil you and gain your favor, but a father does none of those things. Right? Grandparents are allowed to spoil their grandkids, but fathers, you're not allowed to spoil your children. I don't know if it really works that way, but... A father does what's best for his children, even when those children will not understand. A father provides discipline out of a relationship of love, not simple authority or selfish gain. A father considers his posterity, you know what posterity is? Those who will come after him, the generations to come, the children, the children's children, and their children. A father considers his posterity and his responsibility to his father. We all have a father. Paul says, I'm your father, and I have a responsibility as your father, but I also have a responsibility to my father, which also happens to be your father in heaven. A father has an eternal perspective that transcends any earthly consideration. So in declaring himself a father to these believers, Paul was declaring his love and his care for them even at great cost to himself. Let's go back up to verse 9 and, and let's look at what Paul writes. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed. We're beaten and we're homeless. We labor, working with our own hands, being reviled. But we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. Gee, I think I'd find another profession, don't you? Sounds pretty, pretty grim. How many of you would keep going to work every day if, if that was your lot in life? You wouldn't, would you? But see, being an apostle wasn't Paul's job. That wasn't his job. That wasn't his career. Though it's hard to to reconcile these things, I, I believe, even being a pastor, this is not my job. This is not my career. It's my calling. Paul continued to be beaten. He continued to be thirsty. He continued to be homeless. He continued to be poorly clothed. He continued to be reviled. He continued to be defamed. He continued to be persecuted. He continued till the day that they chopped his head off in Rome. Why? Not because he was well compensated on this earthly side. Not because he knew that his name would be famous one day, written in books and read by people all over the world. No, not for any of that. He cared for none of that. He did that because it was his calling. He was an apostle, and he could be nothing else. I believe this. I believe that whatever we do in life, we should do it because we believe it's our calling. I was talking to a guy yesterday, and he said, man, he said, I love what I do. He said, he he works on gas pipelines. And he said, I I just love what I do. He said, "I, I love everything about my job. And the guy standing next to me, he said, man, can you imagine, he said, getting up every day for 30 years and going to a job that you just absolutely hate? He said, I I just couldn't do that. That doesn't mean that we don't have days where we don't feel like getting up. Listen, there's days I don't feel like getting up and, and doing what I do. But I don't do what I do because it's my job or it's my career. I do what I do because it's my calling. Do you do what you do because it's your calling? Do you believe that God can call you to be a mechanic or God can call you to be a plumber or God can call you to be a nurse or God can call you to be uh, an officer of the law or God can call you to be a secretary or God can call you to be a homemaker, a housewife? Because that's your calling. Because that's how God's going to use you to touch the world and change the world. That might be your vocation, and your vocation, I believe, should involve your calling, but ultimately, even above that, our calling is to be a servant of Christ. We are all under oarsmen, rowing the ship under the direction of our captain. Are we rowing together? Are you pushing when you should be pulling? Are you pulling when you should be pushing? Are you upset because you're on the fifth row, middle seat, but you really want to be on the front row, in seat? Or are you content? And do you know that what you're doing right now, you're doing it because this is your calling. We are all called to be servants under oarsmen, under our captain. We are all called to be stewards. We're called to be faithful You might not all dispense the provision of the house the way a pastor or an apostle would. But we are all, in a sense, we are all called to receive that provision from God, from our king. And as we receive it, we are called to be faithful in how we use it and how we utilize it. And how we, in turn, dispense it to those that God has put in our lives when we work our jobs, as we take care of our families, as we do whatever we do every day that we live. Because every day that you live and the small things that you do every day, that's where you are, I believe, to make the greatest difference. Paul... The apostle, I believe, changed the world because he wasn't trying to be a world changer. He changed the world because he was simply trying to be faithful at whatever was before him in that moment. And he did it as unto the Lord, and he did it to the glory of God. If he was in chains, if he was homeless, if he was beaten, if he was left for dead, and he was all of those things, if he was shipwrecked, whatever it was, He knew who the captain of his ship was, and he followed the command in the direction of his captain. He knew who his king and his magistrate was, and he followed the word and the command of his king at whatever cost to himself. Fathers, you're called to love and to care for your family in that way, not only naturally as a provider of shelter, food, and clothing, but more importantly, as a provider of the spiritual provision of God's house. Fathers, you are responsible to be faithful servants and faithful stewards, to receive God's spiritual provision and to dispense it to your family on a daily basis. In many different forms. That doesn't just mean you sit down and have a Bible study with your family every day, but how you love for them, how you provide for them, how you interact with them, how you disagree with them. In every way, in every way imaginable, in many forms. We are called to that responsibility, though we are not all fathers and we are not all pastors. We're not apostles. We're, we are, are you listening? We are all servants. We are all stewards. We are all servants of Christ. We are all stewards of the mysteries of God. The gospel has been entrusted to each in every one of us as a servant and as a steward of Jesus Christ. And we are called to be faithful as we are accountable to Him in this responsibility. Amen? Verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. One thing before I leave this, in those verses 9 through 13, when Paul was talking about the great cost to him personally um, of his ministry, I want you to understand that there is always a contrast between the earthly condition and the spiritual position. Your earthly condition must always be measured against your spiritual position. If you cannot measure your earthly conditions against your spiritual position in Christ, you will lose hope in this world. How could Paul live homeless, thirsty, hungry, poorly clothed, left for dead? All that he went, how could he endure that? Because Paul never lost Sight of the reality of his position in Christ. Paul knew that whatever his earthly condition was, it was at best temporary because his position in Christ was absolutely eternal and secure. He didn't deny the reality that he was homeless and persecuted, but he said, I may be homeless and persecuted in my earthly condition, but I understand who I am in Christ. And that always provided him hope and strength and gave him the ability to go forward in the grace of God under the direction and the command of his king and his captain. Amen? Amen. You see the, the, the footage of men in war? My dad was a World War II vet. He landed in Normandy after the initial invasion because he was with the engineers. He was a bridge builder. But I... You, you watch, there's, a, there's an old classic movie called The Longest Day, or maybe, uh, you know, Saving Private Ryan's a, a good example, and you see the, the actual footage of these guys storming the beach, and, I mean, they're just getting mowed down. You think, what is it that is causing them to just keep going, knowing that more than likely they're going to lose their life? They weren't doing it because they wanted to lose their life. They, they did it because they understood they were under The command. Why did Paul continue to do what he did? Because he was under the command of his king. We're not just serving earthly governments and earthly kings. We are servants and stewards of the king of kings. We are under the command of the captain of the host, whose name is above all names. And regardless of our earthly condition, our position in Him is absolutely secure. Verse 16, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. We often say, if you've been through Not I but Christ, we often say that that God does not want an imitation of Christ, and that is true. God does not want us to simply imitate Christ. God doesn't want an imitation. He wants the, the true and the real manifestation of Christ's life. And so When Paul makes this statement, imitate me, I urge you to imitate me. Paul is urging them. It's a call by the apostle Paul to be conformed to Christ by allowing, listen, the Spirit of God to work unchallenged by our opposing will. Our will often opposes the work of the Spirit. And this is a call by Paul that the believers would be conformed to the image of Christ by allowing the Spirit of God to work unopposed by our will, to be in unity with the Spirit and to be in unity with one another as we work together under the direction of our captain because we are servants, under the direction of our king because we are stewards. So he's saying, imitate me. Be conformed to Christ by the power of the Spirit in your faithful service, in your faithful stewardship, and in a faithful heart of a father. That we would be faithful to have a father's heart, a mother's heart. Of all those who are fatherless, so to speak. There are scores, more than we could ever count, of those who are spiritually fatherless. I'm not talking about biology here. Every one of us have the capacity in Christ to become a disciple and to make a disciple and to become a spiritual father or a spiritual mother to the fatherless. This is what Paul is saying, imitate me in my faithful work as a servant, in my faithful work as a steward, in my faithful work as a spiritual father, as a spiritual parent. Amen? Let's all stand. So, fathers, your greatest responsibility in Christ is not just providing well naturally and financially, though that is part of your responsibility, is to provide for your families. But if all we do is provide well for them naturally and they are deprived of the spiritual provision of God's house, we may gain the whole world but end up losing our very soul. And this is the great responsibility as servants, as stewards, and as fathers.